Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, August the 4th, 2014, and this is episode 1400 of the Survival Podcast. I didn't point this out on Friday the 1st of August, but it's another month gone by. We're in the 8th month of the year, tick-tock, 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 time marches on yet again. Uh, as I look at our weather forecast, I'm sad because I see little opportunity for rain for the next week, and we haven't had any for a while. And uh, we've had one of the mildest summers we've had as far as temperatures go, and 100-degree temperatures are on the way. For many of you, you see the same type of forecast coming. It is easy to believe that right now you are in the depths of summer, the truth is you've passed more than the halfway point through summer. We're headed for fall. Uh, September 21st is known as the fall equinox. And that right now means that the fall equinox is exactly a mere 48 days away. We are 48 days from the official start of fall. Soon the leaves will change. Some of us will pursue the uh, the wily whitetail, stand in a dove field, go out and fish in uh, weather that doesn't make you want to crawl inside the water and, and, and breathe through a snorkel while you fish, do those other outdoor activities. Gardens will come to full fruition. Many of us will be starting our fall, fall gardens uh, very, very soon. Many of us need to be putting seeds into pots right now to start fall plants if we're going to be going into a fall garden that's going to need some plants started ahead of time that can't be out in the heat yet. Fall's right around the corner. Children will be back in school in some parts of the country in about three and a half weeks and other parts about five weeks, depending on where you're from. Time is marching on. Many of you know why I say this from time to time to remind you, but those that don't that are new to the show, I'll tell you why I say this. To point something out very important that most people do not realize, and this is about not just liberty, but all aspects of your lives that are important to you. You're on a sliding scale. And every day, the things that are important to you, if you're working them on them a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, you're getting closer and closer to them. But if you're not working on them, you're sliding away from them. There is no static in life. You're moving in one direction or time is moving you in the other. It's up to you to be active in your quest for personal liberty and independence and self-sufficiency and self-reliance, or time will steal it from you. Society will steal it from you, and the systems that are designed to will steal it from you. Claim it. That's what this show is all about. All right, before we get into the main topic of today's show, let us take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sawtooth Tactical is our first sponsor of the day today. If you're looking for all the stuff to live that tactical lifestyle, check out Sawtooth Tactical. If you want great pricing and great service, get over to Sawtooth Tactical. If you want to support an American company run by U.S. veterans, then get over to Sawtooth Tactical. Check it out today. All the stuff you need to live that tactical and tactical lifestyle, you'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical. Now, once you've got all that tactical stuff geared up, well, you might want to add you know, firearms to that, but then... What you got are overpriced clubs unless you have some ammunition to put in those firearms. Well, check it out. BulkAmmo.com is the place you want to go 
to get the best pricing on large purchases of ammunition, especially on common calibers. And if you want shipping so fast it'll make your head spin, give Bulk Ammo a try. There's a little bit of setup with your account and verifying your age and your ID on the first order. Once that's done, it's almost as if you push a button and ammunition magically appears at your door. Great pricing, great service, lightning fast turnaround. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Uh, next up today, I want to uh, remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you're not a Member Support Brigade member, consider joining. You'll support my show at 18.3 cents an episode. You'll get a lot of great content. You'll get discounts on so much stuff. Your membership will more than pay for itself. Um, check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of those active duty or prior service. You qualify for a discount, email me before you join, service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, do this before, not after you join, and I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service and make a great product even better by giving you a huge discount on it. The military discount and service discount is massive. Um, it's bigger, I think, than most people expect it to be. So let me know if you qualify for that discount. Okay, with that, Let us take a trip through history to the year that was the episode, the year 1400. As we turn the corner, Alex Shrugged has two for us today, recapping the 14th century and War of the Roses, its origins. As much as I'd like to read to you War of the Roses, its origins, I'm going to suggest you go to tspwiki.com, to the history page for 1400, and read it for yourself, because I like wrapping things up, and especially on round numbers like 1400. Recapping the 14th century, the historian Barbara Tuckman called this the Camulatus 14th century, and it certainly was that. Famine, plague, and murder mark the age as the Middle Ages wind down. Half the Chinese population is gone, a fourth to a third of the Europeans are dead, and the peasantry has become reluctant to replace that missing population. In other words, people are not reproducing, and they're not reproducing by choice because of all the death that they've seen. Uh, going on, the Little Ice Age is progressing, which means severe winters and shorter growing seasons. English has become the official language of England instead of Latin or French. Although it is heresy to possess a Bible in English, copies are being made. The 100 Years' War is on hiatus, but will start up soon. The Ottomans have taken Bulgaria and are threatening Constantinople. Tamerlane has murdered millions. His name will signify ultimate evil until Hitler makes people forget him. Everything has changed. Everything. And there is more change to come. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these awesome segments together for us at tspwiki.com. The plague has not only killed people, it killed the best people. People who saw their job as helping the poor, the sick, and downtrodden threw themselves into the fray and were eaten alive. And remember the stuff I played for you on the plague? Literally, that's what the plague does, is eat you alive. As Viktor Frankl once wrote about the Holocaust, the best of us did not survive. People have lost trust in leadership. When they question religion, not only do they let go of the bad, they let go of a good discipline as well. They are not yet trained to be critical thinkers, and in the end, that is the most difficult skill to teach and to measure. How does one measure the ability to think critically? How do we know how much of it is we possess? How far must we go until we have enough of it to be useful? My take by Jack Spirico, and this might offend some people, um, this is what happens when you control people through the use of force and fear and dogma, rather than allow people to control their own lives through logic, education, realism, 
discernment, and critical thinking. And one of the main tools used to control people to this day, but certainly at the time, is religion. Religion is much a tool of control as government is. And what, what's, what's happened here is people have turned their back on religion because, well, this can't be God's work. And that's what the priests keep saying. This is God's plan. Well, this can't be God's plan. That's what people are saying. That's why they turn away. So they turn away from everything. And then if there's nothing to replace the morality of religion with, like common sense and decency and doing right for the sake of right, then people lose it completely. And the people that had it in the first place are the ones that tried to do the most to help, and they were killed, especially by a communicable disease or by war. Those who run forward first into the fight end up dead the quickest. And they're usually the best among us. And then you're left with a population that's dumbed down and ignorant without the leadership that was necessary to keep them functional in their dumbed down ignorance. And it's bringing it right here to today. It's exactly the danger that we're headed toward with this idiocracy we now call the United States of America. The biggest problem we would have with a major life-altering shit hit the fan in this country is how many people that are out there today that are actually holding this nonsense together because it's the only thing we can do that would end up gone. And many of those that remain would not be the strong. Don't believe the crap you hear on YouTube. It will be the strong preppers who survive the shit at the fan. No, many of us would be dead. Just as, especially if it's a disease. Many of us that are good people might end up dead because we try to help the weak. And in the end, you're going to have an awful lot of idiots running around with no sense of critical thinking and the leadership gone. That could be one of, one of the outcomes of a major disaster, you know, of a global or national scale today in this country. And it's because people don't think critically and they don't discern for themselves and they don't figure shit out for themselves. And they are brainwashed and they are taught that certain things are true that are not. And they are led to believe this by people who have been led to believe this for years and years and years. Real quick tying back to Friday's uh, history segment. I went into great detail about the beliefs of the Catholic Church. I will not rehash them here. Some people want to know why. Well, if you, those are your beliefs and you have those beliefs, I respect your beliefs, I disagree with them, but fine, whatever, done. But the point that I made was that this is a programming done to a child, born into Catholicism, taught to them by their grandma, their aunt, their uncle, their mom, their dad, their priest, their teacher, on and on and on and on and on. And of course they believe everything they're told. And they believe it without questioning. It's just an article of faith, but it's not truly faith. Faith is a decision. It's an article of faith that has been pushed into them. I called it brainwashing. Some people say it's not brainwashing because the people doing it believe that they're doing the right thing. doesn't make it not brainwashing. I can believe I'm doing the right thing for you, but if I program you to believe something rather than teach you to discern for yourself, I'm brainwashing you. And my point had nothing to do really with Catholicism. It was for the majority of my listeners who probably aren't Catholic. And... I would then challenge you, how many things do you believe just because you were always taught that they were so? And have you taken the time to examine them deeply and go back and discern for yourself whether they're true and how they actually apply to you in your life, if at all? Have you either confirmed them or proven them to be false? Or are you just walking around believing many things because you've always been told that it is so? If you want liberty, you can't live your life that way. Moving on, real quick, two quick updates here. 
First, Permaethos Perma TV is live. So it's permaethos.tv. Hold on a second. If you are not a member of the first PDC class, either the founders or the, the, the people that we let in class 01 after the founders position were, were full, you can't really do anything there yet. It's in beta. It's in beta for a variety of reasons I won't go into, but we will be opening it up to everybody probably in, in about 12-ish weeks. We're building up the content, the base content now. All members of the PDC in Class 001, you should have received an email about two weeks ago with a password in it on the, for the videos. And the password is the same for every video. And if you didn't get that email and you are a member of Class 001, email me at jack at the com. Put Class 001 in the subject line. And let me know that you don't have the password, and I'll respond to you. Please, if you signed up with, like, like if you're doing it, but you're, you paid with your spouse's name or something, tell me the name the account's under, because I have to verify it before I give it to you. Anybody who thinks we're not being fair by giving you class 001 first, I'm sorry. We have to do a beta. There's a reason we can't open it to everybody yet. There's multiple reasons we can't open it to everyone yet. And we just felt that while we're building it up, it would be a nice reward for those who stepped up and backed Perm Ethos in the beginning. That's why we're doing it that way. It will be open for everybody. And trust me, we want everybody we can get in about three-ish months. Okay? And it is going to be awesome. Permaethos.tv is going to be educational entertainment uh, about all things permaculture, homesteading, and self-sufficiency. It will largely center on the farm in West Virginia that we're working on right now, but it will branch out to many other things. It will become like the Netflix of permaculture, sustainability, and self-sufficiency. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be awesome. And once Kelly gets done with the PDC, he's really going to dig deep into it. Kelly Heron, who's doing the PDC videoing, is a Hollywood-level producer that's been in the business for 20 years that he is going to take Permaethos TV and march forward with it. It will be something that people that don't want to take a PDC, don't want to take a course, don't care about any of that, just want permaculture stuff, will love it, and people that want to do all the other things will love it too. It will be very affordable, and yes, Class 001, you guys, as promised, that'll be our first product out to the market. We'll get a discount on it. All right, next up, real quick, AgriTrue, the other agricultural initiative that I'm involved with. AgriTrue is designed to be a alternative to USDA Organic where producers self-certify. We have our own set and body of standards. We have our own set of requirements of things like ethical treatment of animals, um, our own requirements for things that cannot be used. And it basically says to a consumer, hey, this food has no garbage in it. It's not laced with herbicides. And the animals were well cared for and taken care of. And free range actually means they actually get to go out and range. Um, we're in a slow startup mode with AgriTrue. We want to kick off a big initiative, three prizes, first, second, and third, big prizes. First prize, I think, is going to be $600,000, something like that in value. And then second and third, and third is going to be a significant prize package. This is where I need help from you guys right now so we can start that. We need to be able to run some kind of a raffle, if you will. We're going to have to do it on an honor system. A lot of things we're going to be saying you can earn a chance for in the raffle will be things we can't verify, like giving... Uh, flyers out to producers or telling producers about AgriTrue and how it can help them. So we'll have to have some way that a person can come and basically say, I've done this again, and we can attribute that to the person. Now, again, it doesn't have to be verified, but once the person says, you know, my name is jo Joe Blow, and I'm JoeBlow at Yahoo.com, and uh, gives us a phone number, we're going to want to do that too, because if you don't get the email, we're going to want to call you and say, dude, you won, where do we send your stuff, Right. Um, they can just come back and enter that again and say, I did this and get one chance for it, right? So some way we can manage that. I have John Chrislinger, who is uh, – uh, Kurt Singer, actually, who is uh, – we call Doc K, 
who is one of our partners in AgriTrue, working on a solution for that. If you guys know any way I could manage that or he could manage that, that would be great. Again, it's just a technology issue. Or if some coder out there can build it for like a hundred bucks, easy and simple, and then you own the code and can do whatever you want with it, uh, I'd be happy to spend the money out of my personal pocket to get it done. Anyway, that takes care of the two things I wanted to talk to you about real quick here uh, with other initiatives in the TSP line of initiatives. Let's get into some feedback from you guys for your emails. You know, occasionally I hear from someone that thinks that the genetic modification of all of these crops, corn and soy and wheat, etc., is perfectly safe and healthy. And what could go wrong? Um, yeah, about that. See, all this stuff ends up in our rivers, and our rivers are like the canary in the coal mine, And they get to show us the results of this crap before maybe we see them in more complex organisms like human beings, like bass turning into transgendered bass, male and female at the same time. Let me read this to you. This is uh, from the Washington Post, by the way. As more male bass switch sex, a strange fish story ex ex uh, a same a strange fish story expands. At first she was surprised, then she was disturbed. Now she's a little alarmed. Each time a different batch of male fish with eggs in their testes shows up in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, Vicky Blazer's eyebrows arch a little bit higher. In the latest study, smallmouth bass and white suggerfish captured at 16 sites in the Delaware, Ohio, Susquehanna Rivers, and Pennsylvania had crossed over to a category called intersex, an organism with two genders. I did not expect to find it quite as widespread, said Blazer, a U.S. Geological Survey Biology Studies fish since 2003. USGS scientists have discovered male smallmouth and largemouth bass with immature eggs in several areas of the Potomac River, including near the Blue Plains Advanced White Wastewater Treatment Plant in the district. The previous studies detected abnormal levels of compounds from chemicals such as herbicides, and veterinary pharmaceuticals from farms and from sewage system overflows near smallmouth bass nesting areas in the Potomac. These endocrine-disrupting chemicals throw up functions that regulate hormones and the reproductive system. In the newest findings, at one polluted site in the Susquehanna River near Hershey, PA, 100% of male smallmouth bass that were sampled had eggs. <laughs> Let me read this again. <laughs> In the newest findings at one polluted site in the Susquehanna near Hershey, Pennsylvania, 100% of male smallmouth bass that were sampled had eggs, Blazer said. With the mutant bass, she said, we keep seeing a correlation with the percentage of agriculture in the watershed when we conduct a study. The fish were dissected and analyzed by researchers, swam downstream from farms and animal feed operations, where the rains washed manure filled with various chemicals and hormones into the streams and rivers. You can read the rest of this if you want to. Basically, it works like this. When we plow a field flat and in straight lines and keep dumping shit on it, most of that shit doesn't end up in the plants. It ends up in the dirt, and then it goes from the dirt through the water into our rivers and washes out to sea. Some of it does stay behind, and you get to eat it. And the same thing that's making a smallmouth bass develop eggs in its testicles when you take genetically modified soy and corn and all this other crap that's laced with these same chemicals and feed it to your child, your young developing boy, what could go wrong? This is just another example. The, the conclusion these geniuses come up with is farmers need to be more careful about how they use this stuff and how much of it they let get into the, the, the watershed. This is stupidity, folks. There's no way to do what you're doing now 
and not have it get into the water. It's impossible. If you have a flat field, plowed in rows, drenched in this shit, and let me tell you, we've had manure running into streams as a problem for a long time. We've had fertilizer running into these streams for a long time. We have not had largemouth bass becoming transgendered for a long time. What's the new thing? It's the overuse of these herbicides. These herbicides are designed to create a hypergrowth through hormonal processes. That's how they kill a plant. Let me explain to you. In the, I'm oversimplifying, but I'm doing it so it won't bore you and so that you'll understand it. Okay? A weed's growing. It gets sprayed with glyphosate, Roundup as it's known, in a bottle. Sprays it on there. You would think that the way it kills that plant is to by somehow choking it off or just killing it the way you would with, let's say, fire, like a chemical burn. It's not what happens. What it actually does is it triggers processes in the plant to, to, to go into a hyper-growth stage, a hyper-development stage, and it grows so fast it dies. That's the, that's the, the, the simple layman's way that this works, that it, it's triggering all these growth processes at once, and the plant can't handle it, and it grows itself to death. So then this gets taken into a fish, and its testicles go into a hyper-growth state, and it lays eggs in its testicles. You want to lay eggs in your testicles? Keep eating this shit. I mean, that's what we're headed for in humanity. Look at the percentage of married couples trying to have children that have fertility problems, and look at the correlation between that and the onset of widespread herbicidal use in agriculture. And people say, well, we've used herbicides forever. Not on the fields, Not on the fields. We've sprayed around the fields to control the edges and stuff, and that has its own problems. But we didn't drench the food in herbicide. Because we would have killed the crops that were growing, dumbasses. Do you not understand this, okay? If you don't genetically modify a soybean, and then you spray it around up, the soybean dies. So you can't spray the field with Roundup unless the crop is modified so that it can be sprayed with Roundup. Got it? Okay. You can't sp spray the canola to make the canola oil, which is in tons of the food that you eat all the time if you buy just off the shelf and don't pay attention to it. You can't spray it. You cannot spray this shit on the field where the canola grows unless you genetically modify the canola so they can be sprayed. And I can keep going with GMO cotton and GMO corn. All of these herbicides that we're using today used to be used, that's true, but they were sprayed as control mechanisms to prevent weeds from getting into the fields. Again, I'm not saying that's okay, but it was a hell of a lot less. Now we drench the soybeans in Roundup. We spray the field with Roundup when we plant the soybeans. And when the soybeans get up about half grown and, and the Roundup starts to quote-unquote, wear off, and weeds begin to emerge underneath the soy, they spray it again while it's growing. And the soybean goes, I don't care. I'm modified. I can grow with this crap. This doesn't trigger this response in me. And then you eat it. And then the same shit that's going in our rivers that are turning our, our bass into transsexuals, you're eating and feeding your children. What could go wrong? So the next time somebody tells you GMOs are perfectly safe, I'd like you to use something that we talked about in today's history segment. 
critical thinking. Is it perfectly safe to ingest something that causes a plant through hormonal response to grow itself to death? Does that sound like perfectly safe to you? Uh, it's not perfectly safe to me. Not to mention the widespread catastrophic damages we're doing to our rivers and streams and our oceans. And I'm supposed to worry about climate change from CO2? How about localized climate change from screwing everything up with toxic chemicals? The other thing is, there is a way to sort of kind of fix this, not our ingestion of this crap food, but at least how much goes into the oceans and into the rivers. They're called swales to control and push the water through the land instead of across the land. So we could fix that. And even if we got rid of GMOs and this herbicide crap, chemical fertilizers are going to be with us for a long time before people figure out how to fix that because they don't want to figure out how to fix it. So one way or another, just the manure and the nitrogen from the fertilizer running into the watersheds is a problem. This could all be done with very simple earthworks that your government doesn't want to do because they would prefer to do things like pay people to house illegal alien children. Yes, you can get money for that. By the way, just thought you'd like to know what they're doing with your money instead of fixing a problem that's creating transsexual bass. Anyway, let's go on to another one. Here's one that comes from Eric. Eric says, I just finished listening to episode 1393, Lies That You Believe, and was struck by a telling contradiction that I never realized until this episode. If the retirement services offered by those companies actually worked, the elderly wa actors walking down the beach wouldn't be working to advertise them. <laughs> I've known for a long time that the ads were bogus, but I never before realized how their existence contradicts their own message. Keep up the great work, Eric. That's interesting. Yeah, I never thought of that before. I, I don't know how big a deal that is, but it is kind of a, a funny thing to at least look at and consider. The, 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 the guy that there's like, he's still got a, some muscle tone and muscle cut and he's like, you look at him and go, he's like 69-ish, you know, but you can tell like this guy still works out. This guy's, this guy's the 69 we want to be someday and he's got his, he's got his wife with him and she's like, she's like 64-ish, but she's like hot 64, like man, yeah. And you're looking at them and you're thinking, you know, these are actors that are still working. And probably not because they just want to, because actors that are just working because they want to at that age are probably like making movies, not commercials for American Express. So that's, that's a valid point. But I, I think that it is important that we understand those, those commercials are bogus. And what's bogus about them isn't that investing for the long haul smartly, which financial advisors that work for these companies seldom know how to do. But it's not that that can't result in a, a significant sum for retirement. If you're careful about what you do, that's not the myth. The myth is that the average person can expect to be walking down the beach at 69 if they just work their brains out, kill themselves, and live the modern lifestyle until they're 65 to 69 years old. We're killing ourselves and saving for a future that largely will not exist or the money will be consumed by the medical care that we'll need at that time because we're not living healthy. And I don't just mean the food we eat. And I don't just mean the exercise levels that we do not have that we need to have. I mean the stress that we're under in our daily lives. Here's a fundamental reality. If you take a creature like a mouse and remove every stress from it, eventually that mouse will actually become ill. If it has no stress, stress is a driving force in life. But if you stress it excessively, 
but not constantly, it will be, develop health problems that are far worse than from a lack of stress. But if we stress it almost continuously, we can rapidly give even a young mouse a heart attack and kill it. Stress is a killer. Stress is a big reason that so many Americans are fat, more so than the food that they eat. The food's garbage, there's no doubt about it. The amount of sugar that we're eating today. Let me just give you a quick lesson in, in nutrition and weight gain from livestock that every farmer will confirm to you what I'm about to say, even if they don't like what the implications are to human beings because they think, oh, yeah, wheat and corn are healthy for people to eat. They're, they're not. So let's just look at if we're raising something like a pig as a young pig and we want to raise it to market and right before we take it to market we want to fatten it up. I talked about the same thing with chickens recently. So when we have a young animal and we want that animal to grow rapidly to a market weight, we feed it a diet that is heavy on protein, 20% or more protein. We also want to make sure there's a significant amount of fat in there and we minimize the carbohydrates. Now, the carbohydrate load on these young animals is probably higher than what would even really be considered optimum. It would be better to balance that more toward fat, but that makes feeding them expensive, just to be blunt. And you can overdo the protein, mainly because these animals do have such a rapid growth rate and have been genetically bred to put weight on fast, and if you overdo the protein, you can overfeed them. Okay? Humans don't really suffer from this problem. Anyway, the way we handle this is we have this protein-fat-carbohydrate ratio that we feed these animals all during their growth phase. And then they reach a point where they are close to market weight and close to market frame, if not weight. In other words, the, 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 the width of the shoulders, the length of the back, the frame of the animal, and the muscle of the animal has come up to an expected market weight. We now wish to put fat on that animal before we take it to market. One, because it will continue to increase the weight and we're paid for weight. But two, because fat makes the meat taste better. It just does. Anybody that's ever had a nicely marbled piece of steak or a very lean piece of steak will tell you, I, the, the marbled steak tastes really good. Okay? Now it kind of juices up and tenderizes the meat, too. Lean cuts are generally a lot tougher than fatty cuts. So we want to fatten them up. How do we do that? We shift the animal to a higher carbohydrate load. We don't go to a higher fat ratio. We reduce protein and possibly fat. And we increase, because there's not that much fat in an animal's diet in, in, in a feedlot environment, but we go to something that is highly fattening. For instance, when I want to grow an animal, I might lean toward soy meal or alfalfa meal or something like that, and I'm pushing again for a protein ratio somewhere between 18 and 20% for most needs, sometimes a little lower. But if I want to fatten something, I put it on corn, right? So... I put it on corn, and it gets fat. You know what the, the protein content of corn is? About 9%. It's almost all sugar. So if you want to fatten something, you put it on a diet not of fat, but of sugar. And it doesn't matter if that sugar is in the form of granulated white crystals made from sugar cane or from wheat flour. Sugar to the body is sugar to the body. Your body is very good metabolically at converting those long chains into short chain glucoses and using them for energy. When energy in a being exists in surplus to their needs, the energy is then converted into fat and stored. 
That's how it works. So a diet that's heavily based on carbohydrates is going to make people fat. Period. End of story. And any rancher will tell you that's exactly how they put fat on a cow, a pig, or a chicken. So if, if high carbohydrates put fat on cows, pigs, and chickens, why would you not believe they put fat on human beings? Especially since pigs and humans are so close metabolically and anatomically. Notice I didn't say biologically, right? So we're not, pigs and humans are not like, even like, let's say, monkeys and humans, which the divide is much bigger than I think modern science wants to talk about. So we're not like that. But when it comes to, if you wanted to teach somebody anatomy, use a pig. They'll learn all about human anatomy by dissecting a pig. If you want an animal that makes an analog for humans, let's say you wanted a dead pig and you were going to shoot it to see how ballistics perform on a pig, it's almost identical to the way they perform on a human. So if pigs are that close to us from that standpoint, of their organs, their biological processes, and their biological structure, and putting them on corn makes them fat, and we know that it does, why wouldn't that be the case for humans? So we now have a society where we're feeding people garbage, putting them through massive amounts of stress, and then telling them to save for a retirement and promising them a utopian retirement. And that's why we have to live for our dreams today. We have to live for what's positive today. We have to build the life we want today. The deferment of quality of life until the age of retirement is the big lie of the retirement community, the retirement industry, and of society as a whole. That you should defer until retirement that easy, happy life. Well, what you should be doing is constructing that easy, happy life. Now, why don't they want you doing that? Because then you cease to be a cog or a sprocket in the machine. See, right now, they view you like the old TV show, The Jetsons. You're either a Cogswell cog or a Spacely sprocket. And while Spacely sprockets and Cogswell cogs might compete with each other, the, the actual customer base buys both sprockets and cogs. That's you. And if you live your life as a sprocket or a cog you're going to be stressed. And if you're going to be stressed, you're going to have a miserable old age. And we think about, well, what about the people that came before us? Didn't they live these highly stressful lives? They lived physically stressful lives. They worked hard, yes. They were out in the temperatures of heat and cold, yes. They had to work hard for what they ate and for what they gained. But we call that a sense of purpose. And a sense of purpose It's very spiritually centering no matter how you define your own spirituality, whether it be through religion or strictly spiritualism or however that is. And that removes stress from the body because I feel like I belong here and what I'm doing is what I am meant to do. You want survivalism. For modern survivalism, that's the best advice I can give you because it makes no sense to be sitting with a bunker full of food waiting for the apocalypse while your heart goes boom and you fall over and die. Or you end up alive with your lungs full of fluid and your pericardium, which is a sac around your heart full of fluid, breathing like this. So you take a pill that, that flushes it out for a while, and for a while you can breathe normal, and then... And then you are now a cog for the pharmaceutical industry. They don't care if you're a cog for productivity or a cog for consumption or a sprocket for productivity or a sprocket for production. They just care that you are one of them. Make the machine run so that they can control things and you can be part of the controlled system. 
That's why modern survivalism is about getting out of that system. And what we do take from that system, we understand fundamentally what it is, how it works, and we choose. So yeah, my house is on grid. I know how that works. I know that I'm paying taxes on that. But I'm working to minimize that as best I can. But there's other things in my life that are more important that I free myself from than the electrical grid. I can't tell you how many people are free of the grid, and yet they are completely enveloped in the reality of society, which is a false reality and a false dichotomy. Because I'm off-grid, Obama, Obama, oh my God, really? Right? Oh, Jack, would you be okay if they were going, you know, Romney or Bush or whoever the hell's next? No, no, it'd be just as stupid. It would be just that you're wrapped up in this false world. And that means you're going to focus on all the shit you don't control, you're going to be constantly frustrated, you're going to be constantly stressed, and you're digging your grave. Save for your retirement so you can leave it to your children or they can pay off your medical bills. That's what you're really doing. Make sure you pick out a good stone and a good casket with all that money, because that's what you're doing. Or maybe you'll be an old person. Hi, welcome to Walmart. Here's a shopping cart. Or walking down the beach pretending to be retired. It's your choice. Tick-tock, as I said at the beginning of today's show. Let's take another one. Here's an interesting question. This is from Kirk. Kirk says, I've got a question for you or a member of your council as you see fit. What do you do about aging eyes and iron sights? Background, I'm just a couple years older than you, and I'm starting to have trouble with iron sights on rifles. An 03 Springfield truck gun I've had for years. I got for for $100 bucks 20 years ago. And I see the front sight just signed, but the rear sight is getting fuzzy and making shooting accurately very difficult. Should aging eyes start buying optics to mount on their rifles that traditionally have been shot with iron sights? And uh, thanks, Jack Kirk. Good question. Um, let me start out with the, the rifle in question, the 03 Springfield, and it's a truck gun. I'm wondering if this is some kind of a modified, slightly bubba-ized 03 Springfield that's had the combat peep sight removed and replaced with like a, a you know a standard V-notch on the barrel forward of the receiver front sight, dovetail sight, something like that. Because the first thing I would advise somebody asking this question is, well, if you can see the front sight fine, and you can see the target fine, then you should be shooting with a peep sight, which is far superior as an iron sight goes to all of the conventional hunting sights that we have with dovetails. Um, you know, V-notch where you've got the sights out in front of you. When we look through a peep sight, we're not even looking at the rear sight. The rear sight is this ring that causes us to naturally center the front sight. And once that's done, all we're looking at is the front sight and the target. So it, it, it behaves a lot more like an optical scope with non-magnification and non-light gathering. So if you're having trouble seeing through that, we'll get to that in a second, but if you're having trouble with iron sights that, are, again, are the more conventional V-notch forward receiver front sight, where that, that, that rear sight is, you know, 8, 10 inches away from the, the, the dominant firing eye, try switching to... And an iron sight that is a, a proper iron sight. If I were lord of all guns, you would have to buy uh, a, a leaf-style sight as an accessory because I would produce no weapon with a sight configuration like that because I think it is so inferior to a, a ghost ring or peep sight model that there is no reason to produce it unless the consumer just really, really wants to have it. Uh, and I really wouldn't do that because I think the market can decide. But I, I really would never advise anybody, if they had a choice with iron sights between a, a, a rear receiver mount, uh, ghost ring, or peep sight, 
versus a notched sight forward of the receiver because everything's better. That's why when you pick up an AR-15 that's based on the M-16 that the United States military used, that's what you have. If, if, if a sight forward of the receiver was better, that's what would be on there. Trust me. I know. I am not a doctor, and I don't play on one on TV, but you can still trust me, especially on this. Now, on the overall question, I'm getting older. My eyes are getting weaker. I don't see the sights as well. Will an optical sight solve my problem? Maybe. It depends. Are you making an excuse, or are you serious? Because I see all the time on gun lists and stuff like this, my old eyes this, my old eyes that. I'm like, my old ass, right? It's like I'm making an excuse to put a scope on the weapon. I don't think the guy, the Kurt here is asking that question that way. But I see it all the time, and I see it as an excuse, and I just don't see like I used to anymore. And you talk to guys at ranges saying that, the guy's like 30. You're like, really? Okay, so my first suggestion would be maybe you need to go see your eye doctor. You know, I mean, there's limitations to what eye doctors can do, but I've seen a lot of people I don't see quite so well anymore, and you look at their glasses, and first of all, have you cleaned these this year? And they're scratched and pitted, so maybe you just need new glasses. Maybe you need to go get your prescription adjusted. As your eyes change, so that's that's one thing to look at there. Is 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 the Or this is the one I love. Well, my eyes, I just don't see the way I do so. Well, how about your glasses or your contacts? Well, I don't have those. Really? No, I've never had... I have perfect vision, like, to read with and all, but, like, when I look through my gun, I just... I'm getting older, so I don't see... Maybe any glasses now. No, I never had glasses. Well, what you're telling me is you no longer see the way you used to. Uh-huh. Maybe any glasses. So that'd be the next thing, is if you don't have glasses, go see an optometrist, because what you're looking at when you're shooting is both forms of sight... So we call people far-sighted or near-sighted, and some people have astigmatisms and they can't see either one very well. That would be me with my left eye being almost blind. And very, very minor version of that in my right eye. But I put my glasses on and everything's crystal clear at all distances. Well, a lot of times people fool themselves and think, well, I can see just fine because, well, if I pick up a book and I look at it, I have no trouble reading it. First of all, if your vision's declined over time, You've adapted to that, especially if you don't wear glasses. And you've just, you're, if, if somebody could show you what it looked like when you were 20, and you could see it like that side by side to the way it looks like now, you'd be like, wow, I see like crap. But since you can read, you think it's okay. But you're also focused only on the near, okay? And then that guy says, well, I can look out there in the woods, and I can see the leaves on that tree 55 yards out there. And I have enough visual acuity, so I know that's about 55 yards, and that's an oak tree, and I can see the shape of the oak leaf. Okay? But can you focus on both distances at the same point? Can you focus on your finger here and that distance out there so that you're both looking at the near and the far simultaneously? And many times it's people that never had to wear glasses get into a point where maybe they should have glasses or contacts. That's what goes first. The, the, the multi-distance focal so being able to see way out there and close up at the same time becomes difficult. But then, then again, this is difficult for anybody to a degree because the eye is trying to focus to both distances. And that front sight post way out there, if you hold your finger arms length out, is a lot easier to focus on something 50 yards away in that than if you hold your finger up close to yourself about the distance of a front of rear sight and you'll see that one or the other is going to be just a hair blurry. 
probably the closer one. So if we go to a peep sight and we come very close and we're looking through it, so if you take your thumb and forefinger and make a circle, okay, put that right in front of your dominant eye, put your finger out in the center of it, you'll find it's very easy to center, and you'll notice that it doesn't really matter whether the ring's in focus or not. You're looking at the your front finger as the post and your distance, and it's a lot easier to see clearly. So that's why we might go there. So I'd say get your eyes checked, update your prescription if necessary. If you've never worn glasses and you're telling me you have this problem, consider getting glasses. And then if you still don't see well, there's no shame in putting a scope on a rifle. Scopes on rifle do improve accuracy. But if you actually want to shoot with iron sights, try these things before you, you go off the reservation, so to speak, and try to bubba eyes a rifle that was never meant to have us. Because see, that 03 Springfield was never really meant to be scoped. If you look at the ones that were designed to be scoped as sniper rifles, they had to make significant modifications, and they're not what we would normally think of doing to a rifle today to put a scope on it. They're up from the side with this over... It's a weird configuration. Same thing they do with the Mosin Nagants uh, and the Mausers to make sniper rifles out of them. They were Those rifles were just not meant... Um, to be made into scoped rifles. So those are my thoughts there. Now, I get this question a lot, so I'm going to say it again. If you wear glasses, I have a very inexpensive place for you to get extra glasses and more glasses. I believe that your optometrist is extremely valuable for diagnosing your vision and telling you, yes, you need this prescription. But I think most optometrists are charging way too much for a pair of glasses. I use a company called Zeni Optical, and I'm going to spell it for you because that's what I think most people get confused. They can't find it. Zeni is Z-E-N-N-I, Z-E-N-N-I, optical.com. Uh, I recently bought two pair of wireframe glasses uh, with the transitions lenses in them, so they, they go from light to dark when I go outside. Uh, $120 bucks for two pairs. Uh, this is a scratcher. This is really kind of optioned up, something you'd pay 300 bucks for at the optometrist. Two pair for $120. If you just want a cheap, ba- I have like cheap backup glasses that I keep in cases in like my truck box, uh, my uh, truck glove box, and I have a pair in my nightstand and, and like that, just so there's always a pair of glasses if I need them, if I break a pair, can't find them, whatever. Because here's the thing about if you wear glasses and it's dark in your house, and you wear glasses with thin wire frames like I do, they could be right there, but you can't see them because you don't have your glasses on. You can't find your glasses, so you can find your glasses. So you get your backup glasses, and you can find your glasses like that, yeah? All right? So <laughs> those glasses I have like 13 bucks a pair into, and they're good glasses. They just don't have the transitions, lenses, the extra scratch resistance, and all that other stuff on them. 13 14 bucks for a pair of glasses? you got to be kidding me. Um, and if you do rely on you know glasses for your vision... Even if you continue to buy, let's say, your high-end glasses to support your local economy from your optometrist, go out and buy four or five pair of these 15-buck glasses and have them as backups. Because it's only a matter of time till somebody or something steps on a pair of your glasses. Uh, that's my thoughts on that one there. This one comes from Jerry. Um, Jerry says, I know you say to have 5 to 10% of your wealth in gold and silver, and you don't like to give financial advice And I don't specifically, like to your situation, I can give you my overall view of the market, and that's it. Which I understand. You have people who you look towards for advice with metals, maybe two or three names. Not really. No. Because I think most people giving advice about metals are just selling metal. That's how I feel about it. I think that, because I am not a trader. This is what I've tried to explain to people. I I don't mean trader, I mean trader. 
When I talk about timing the market and all, I mean, oh shit, here comes a giant recession. Let's put our money in cash until this thing goes through. And then we can pick and choose how we go back in. That's not being a trader. A trader is somebody like, well, I think Pfizer is going to go up today, so I'm going to buy it. I'm going to short it and hedge it with a call. And then tomorrow I'm going to liquidate that position and move over here. I'm going to call her that with a stop loss. That's trading. That's moving the money, you know, daily or weekly. That's trading. Timing the market is, wow. Bad shit's coming, let me get out of the way. With silver and gold, my approach is very, very simple. I buy small amounts over the long term. What we call in stock, dollar cost averaging. And I tend to simply do this. If there's a big drop in the market for any reason at all, that's when I buy and I catch up. So I might not buy any silver for months. And all of a sudden, silver drops four bucks. And I just kind of look at the market, and I look at the historical charts, and I go, yeah, seems like a decent time to pick up some more. Let's let's buy a few hundred dollars or a thousand bucks worth of silver, and let's put it away in our stash. That's it. That's all I do. I, I, I think, again, most of the people giving you advice, you you almost never find them not going, and I buy my silver from Joe Blow's Silver Emporium. I mean... That is the entire business. And and everybody I know of that gives significant advice on silver and or gold are true believers of the, the religion of the metal. Okay, They are followers of the faith, not discerning financial people. Or they're bullshitters making lots of green money off you buying stuff that's silver and gold. Right? This is what I mean by believers in the faith. Only gold is real money, or only silver and gold are real money. They've never been worth... This is all hyperbole and bullshit. Silver and gold are commodities, like oil and oats and wheat. But they have certain attributes that make them more stable and reliable and dependable than many other commodities. In that, if I have a lump of gold or silver refined to a certain state, mint-marked and weighted and I put it in a drawer, and I die, and my son dies, and my grandson dies, and my great-grandson dies, and my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson one day opens the drawer and pulls it out. It's the same as it was the day I put it in there. Now, what is it worth? I don't know. Whatever the market says. But it will never go bad. It will never become altered. If it's silver, it might tarnish a bit, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the intrinsic components of what silver is. If if we take it and it's an ounce and we cut it in exactly half and we have two half ounces, they have the exact same value. There's no there's no you know once it's refined and it's done and it's it's ninety nine 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 silver. It is what it is. It's not like corn where if I split two silo two, two silos and one age is different than the other, the lifespan of one might be different than the other. Quality might be different than the other, right? And when the corn comes out of the field, it is of its quality. It will never be a higher quality than it is that moment. All it can do is go down. Now, it's a very stable grain, right? But it can't get better. Where I can pull shitty silver out of the ground, put it through a refining process, and it's just as good. There's so many things about silver and gold that make them unique commodities, yet they are still commodities. They are not worthy of your worship. They are not worthy of your faith. They are not anything beyond anything else that is a commodity except for some attributes that are notable. And there is nobody in the metal industry that I know of 
that would tell you that. And if they won't tell you that, I don't trust every other word that comes out of their mouth. Here's my advice, and I think it's all you really need. Buy what you like. Buy from a good, trustworthy source. And I mean this. My go-to source is my sponsor, Jam Bullion. That's why I made them a sponsor. I'm big enough in my space now, and I charge so little for my sponsorships. I could have any silver or gold or silver and gold or metals company I want as a sponsor. I chose JM because I trust them. I can talk to the owner, and they're extremely competitive on their pricing. So that's who I buy from. Buy when the market goes down. Do not invest large sums at one time to catch up to your 5% to 10%. Get there over time. If the market looks on a major run up, don't buy. Pigs get fed. Hogs get slaughtered. That's it. If you want to hold metal in a retirement account or a 401k or anything like that, buy ETFs. Don't put physical metal into a retirement account. It is stupid. Let me say it one more time just so people get it. It is stupid, and nobody giving advice in the metals industry as a profession will tell you it's stupid because they don't give a shit where you put it after you buy it. They just want you to buy as much as possible. So if they can be like, yeah, yeah, throw your IRA in a silver and gold, buy it from my friends over here, they don't give a shit where the money comes from because when it comes out on the other side, they get their commission. Silver and gold are historic storages of wealth. They are value-representative the way any other commodity is, with attributes that make them a little better than a lot of other choices. And a big part of it is how much you can hold in such a little amount. An amount of gold that could get you established in a new life can be held in the palm of one hand. And no matter what happens to the economy, including the value of that gold being cut in half, it could probably still get you started in a new life. And it's anonymous. It goes where you go. And no one can degrade its value other than the market saying what it's trading at today. That's what makes it unique, but it's not worthy of your worship. And that's what most of these people in this industry are. They're gold and silver worshipers. Or they would like you to, they're priests for gold and silver that tell you to worship it while they attain dollars through your act of being parishioners to their church. You can show me a good trustworthy source on gold and silver as an advisory capacity. I'll change my mind. I just haven't seen one yet. Trust yourself. Trust your instincts and take it slow. That's my advice. Um, let's move on to a different question. This is from Megan. Megan says, I just started listening to your podcast and love them. I really like the recent discussion about how a large number of women would love to be raising their children versus the crazily juggling act of wear working and caring for our kids. My question is, I have only recently woken up, and my husband and I are under a considerable hazy amount of debt. We just finished paying for a car, so it's mostly credit cards now, mortgage too. Do you have any advice for making it out of the hole? I know you did this. Do I make emergency fund first? I think you recommended three months pay. Then attack one at a time, smallest to largest. Largest interest to lowest? Is it even advantageous to consolidate debt? When working hard to pay things off, when do you allow yourself treats? Also, do you have any tips or tricks on budgeting and creating a sustainable family budget? How did you do it? 
Uh, would you ever recommend going to a financial advisor? Uh, what do you think about that profession? Yeah, you're new. Financial liars is what I call them. Also, would you cut all the kids' activities while paying off the debt? I'm trying to make a game plan that will work for me. I've been reading books like America's Cheapest Family to get the right on the money, but have not found much else out there to read on the subject. Are there any other books you would recommend when it comes to finances? I appreciate your advice and what to do on the, and what you do with the podcast. Thanks, Megan. Um, wow. Like, talk about a cabillion questions wrapped up in one and all of them being so good. I'm going to do my best to answer it. Let's start out with what you do. How do you get out of debt? There's, there's two ways that I recommend to get out of debt. Uh, both of them really are the same way, which is pay off the debt. Way number one is what De Dave Ramsey calls a debt snowball. And way number two is a way that Dave Ramsey would have a heart attack if he knew I used this method in his name in the same breath. And, and I really don't care because I'm not out trying to sell books like Dave does. I'm actually trying to tell people how to fix their problems. So way one, which can work depending on what type of debt you have is the debt snowball, and I do recommend it. It is the Dave Ramsey method. I guess it's not really the Dave Ramsey method, but it's the method that Dave Ramsey made famous. We take all our debts, and we look at them. First of all, emergency fund, yes, minimum $1,000 emergency fund. Three months is your long-term emergency fund. In debt payoff mode, I'm okay with $1,000, $2,000. That will handle true emergencies. The car broke, and we need $800 to fix it. Okay, here's $800, the emergency fund's down to $200 now. Back to minimum payments, and all the money goes on the uh, savings account toward back to $1,000, and then back to paying off the debt. This keeps us from being come, becoming derailed. Because I'd rather do that and go to minimum payments than add $800 worth of debt, which is what happens if you don't have a $1,000 emergency fund. Most emergencies, true emergencies, can be handled for $800. There are major life-altering emergencies like somebody getting a cancer diagnosis. And at that point, frankly, saving that person's life is more important than debt to me. Just to be completely honest at that, at that type of a situation. So the, the everyday emergencies that derail debt payments can usually be handled for about a grand and that or less. And that's what Dave and I tend to agree on. So $1,000 emergency fund, now start the debt snowball. We take our smallest debt. We don't even look at interest rates. I don't care what the interest rate is. I care what debt can I kill the fastest. So I take my smallest debt and I take every penny I can scrape toward debt elimination And I pay it all focused like a laser beam on that one debt. And I kill that one debt with evil hatred. The reason is I can actually get rid of that debt. Whatever the smallest total balance due is, I kill that debt. Then when that debt's paid off, all the money that was going on that debt dog piles onto the, on top of the minimum payment on the next biggest debt. And you keep doing that, and by the time you get to the last debt, which is the biggest debt, that seems like you should have started there, you have 100% of everything to throw at it and eliminate it. In theory, this works, and it works really good in this situation. We have a Kohl's credit card for $400. We have a, you know, a mid-grade credit card for $2,500, and we have a great big uh, Visa or MasterCard that we owe twelve grand on. If your debt's staggered like that, this, this method is dramatically effective because you have this spread out. And probably what you've been doing is paying a little extra on all of them and you're just, 
it's like going up against that big giant ship with the with the super shields in a video game, and if you're shooting it everywhere, you never get through because it keeps rebuilding itself. But if you focus all your shooting in one spot, you get a weakness, you get through and blow it up. That's how this works in that situation. Let me tell you where it doesn't work real good. We have student loan debt of twenty thousand dollars. We have Mastercard debt of twenty thousand dollars, and we have Visa card debt of twenty thousand dollars. Well, first of all, which one's the smallest one? And they're still also large. They're still sucking you dry and, and what have you. Or more likely, if you're not that bad off, you have like a credit card with like seven grand on it, another credit card with like eight grand on it. So you owe like, you know, 15 grand, but it's split almost evenly. And both of the credit cards are k killing you with interest rates because the interest rates are significant on those. And there's no tax benefit to that debt at all. And you're just spread. And you're spread almost evenly. This is where I'll change up from what Dave says. And I do believe in debt consolidation. And I only believe in one kind, though. And it only works if you own a home and you have enough equity in your home to make it. And I, I do believe in doing it through a home equity loan, a second mortgage. I'll tell you why. All the interest is tax deductible. And right there, that gives me an advantage. Number two, the interest is going to be lower than a credit card. And if you're in debt problems, you're probably not going to get that 0% interest credit card, and it probably isn't really 0% interest when you read everything in. So getting the debt out of a consumer debt into a commodity-backed homeowner's debt, if you're not in that perfect stair-step model, to me, makes sense. It is what we did. We had about $20,000 in debt primarily on two credit cards. We took out a second mortgage, and we consolidated it. It saved us hundreds of dollars per month. Let's say it again. For somebody who says this is not a good idea, it saved us hundreds of dollars per month. The funny thing about hundreds is they rapidly add up to thousands. Okay? So it was more than $300 a month in total. Because that's, with that level of debt and credit cards we had, that's what we were paying. It was about 300 and some odd dollars a month in interest from the two credit cards separately combined when you combine them together. So that meant that we had to pay $300 before we paid a dime against the balance. We moved it into a home equity loan on a 10-year home equity loan. The payment on that 10-year loan was lower than the minimum payment on the two credit cards combined. Let me say that again. The It was a 10-year loan. So even if you paid the minimum, you're going to get rid of it in 10 years The combined 10-year loan payment was less than less than the minimum payment on the two credit cards, which almost didn't affect the balance at all. And had we made that minimum payment on the credit cards, it would have took 25 years probably to pay the credit cards off without any additional spending. Okay, So this made sense for us. It may make sense for you. The reason I won't send you to a financial advisor for this advice is he will always say to do this. A financial advisor will always say, well, if you want to eliminate your debt, don't reduce the amount of money you're saving for your retirement. That would be terrible because it costs him money, see? Right? What he's going to say is just transfer it over to a home equity line of debt, and then it's tax deductible, which is not untrue. And then you're going to have a house payment anyway, and it won't make your house payment go up that much. And you can just forget about it and go back to saving for retirement because by the time you retire, that will be paid off anyway, which he's probably going to put you in a 30-year fixed second mortgage which will be around so long you might as well name it. It lives longer. If it if a debt lives longer than your average dog, it's a problem, okay? Just 
to put it in perspective. That's how I feel. If, if you could name your debt because it lives longer than your dog, you have a problem. 30-year mortgage, fixed rate on a home, I'm okay with. With a caveat, we'll get to in a second. When we moved into that 10-year um, model, we said we're going to pay more on it, and we did. We paid more, and we paid more, and we paid more, and we made a huge reduction in it. And then we decided, you know, we're going to sell this house. So then we're like, well, did we screw up when we did this? Now, since we bought Smart, we made significant improvements to the house, and we did an appraisal on the house, we went, no, we can make money on this house. We can walk away owing nothing with a profit. So when we sold that house, both of the mortgages, the first and second, were, were taken to zero. We got a check. We got a check on that sale for almost $20,000. We rolled that into improvements to a new house, which we then sold later for a profit, and we were debt-free at that moment, except for a mortgage, which we were technically already debt-free, but I didn't consider it done yet because we were still carrying the second mortgage that was from the consumer debt. So I was unwilling to say we were debt-free, except for the mortgage, because it was a second mortgage. But the day we sold that house and rolled the profits into a new home, We were debt-free except the mortgage, and we've remained that way ever since. Right now, we do have a lease on a vehicle, but we, when we looked at buying versus leasing, it made financial sense to lease the vehicle. I don't really consider that to be a debt. I consider it to be an expense, and there's a difference. There really is. That, that, that's a known, fixed, limitation obligation. We know exactly how long that'll last, and paying upfront and full for the thing new, Buying it on financing or leasing it, financially leasing made the most sense. So that's why we went with that. So that's kind of my philosophy on debt and two ways to get out of it. The truth is, in your current situation, you have to make pennies scream. No matter how you do this, you have to make pennies scream. Because if you just spin the debt into a second mortgage, if that works for you, okay, and it may be worth doing, and you just say, okay, now our payment is this, and it's just part of the house payment, and forget about it, you will find yourself back in debt again. It will be too easy. You have to take that now and say, now I have to look at this separate from the mortgage. This is my debt. This is my consumer debt. It's just under better terms now. And you have to make, is, it, then you have one debt, and you make the biggest payment you can on it every month until it's gone. And when it's eliminated, all that becomes savings and money to do stuff that you want to do with. And either way that you do this, whether it's the snowball method or the consolidation through home lending method that I recommend as an option, not the go-to all the time, then you will be surprised how fast you pay it off. If you said, Jack, I have a credit card bill for $500, I have a credit card bill for $1,500, and I have a credit card bill for $7,000, and I have a credit card bill for $10,000, should I do the consolidation or the Dave Ramsey method? I would probably say Dave Ramsey. It will probably get done faster if you're stair-stepped like that. The problem is that most Americans' debt is not stair-stepped like that. It's in one or two big chunks. Because they've already consolidated because, well, the Platinum MasterCard had better terms than the Kohl's card. So they've already paid off the Kohl's card with the Platinum MasterCard for the 2.9% interest. But something weird happened and that 2.9% interest rate went away. And now we're paying 17% or 18% on that card, and we don't know how we got there. And this new card says it's 0% for the first six months, but it only covers $2,500 worth of balance transfers. So I don't know if I should do that. See, that's where most people are not in this perfect. Dave Ramsey's method is perfect for the perfect client. For, for many Americans, they're too spread over one or two large debts, and that doesn't really help. 
They, they can't get enough steam up on debt A if they're still paying the minimum on debt B. And that's where we're looking to some sort of consolidation. And there is no question that while all debt sucks, debt with tax-deductible interest is better than debt with interest that's not tax-deductible. Especially when the interest is less on the tax-deductible side. right? So if we go from paying $300 in interest a month before we break even and can pay anything off, to $150 a month before we break even and can pay anything off, we're all, we already know we're better off. And, and I think when Dave doesn't recommend this analysis, he's being disingenuous and trying to sell more books. I'm sorry. And if you're a fan, I'm sorry. That's how I feel. Okay? So we're already ahead. When I take that $150 and deduct it from my income and pay less taxes and pay about $40 from that one deduction less than income tax, which is what it'll work out for people that make a significant income, you know, middle class, upper middle class, that $150 bucks will save me $40 in taxes. That just took down the $150 to $110. So now I'm comparing $110 to $300. Duh. We do it. But we only, and this is the why, and to be fair to Dave, this is why Dave doesn't recommend it. You probably weren't disciplined when you got into the debt. The only way this model works is to be more disciplined than you've ever been before in your life. You have to take this new clean slate, as it were, and you have to understand it's not clean. It's dirty. It's dirty with all the debt you made, and you have to still attack it. But I, I believe that most people that consolidate to a second mortgage lower their interest rate, change the interest to tax deductible, and focus on it all in one place at one time will get out of debt faster unless they're in a perfect snowball scenario. You just have to be disciplined when you do it. You have to cut up every one of those credit cards. If you need one, I, and I'll, I'll admit this, I now own a, a real credit card, a regular, it's either Visa or MasterCard, I don't know, one of the two, cards. And we have it for travel. Because for years, I used my debit card to rent cars and to get hotel rooms, and it was never a problem. It was never a problem. It was never a problem. And people told me for years it was a problem. I'm like, no, it's not. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it's not. This year seemed to be a major change in policy, specifically with rental cars, where it became a problem multiple times. And once it actually became a problem, we said, fine. We'll get a credit card. It's only for travel. It's like break glass in case of travel, right? And so it sits there for that purpose only. We don't travel unless we have the money so that we could pay cash. And we'll even usually do this. Yes, 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 National, here's my credit card. There you go. Okay. When you pull in with the car, is the tank full, sir? Yes, I filled your tank. And how would you like this? You would like to settle that on the card on, on, you have on record with us? No. Here's my debit card. And they'll settle it on the debit card. And there's no actual balance ever then on the credit card. It's just use the hold as collateral. So you can usually do that. That's how we usually do it. Tips and tricks. Again, you got to make pennies scream. you got to learn how to cook cheap. Um, do you cancel all the kids' activities? Um, I, I say no, probably. Are they very expensive? Expensive activities that have a lot of unseen expenses, like driving them and all different types of peripheral expenses. Maybe, 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 maybe. Okay, I think kids are kids once, but I don't think that little Tammy needs to be in cheerleading, volleyball, softball, piano, 
tap dancing and jazz class, right? Well, we're paying off the debt, pick one or two. And kind of slide them toward the ones that they're the best at or you think are the best for them and cost the least. All right. And understand that like these activities are, are a big part of the stress in life. My brother and sister-in-law have their kids in freaking everything. The one upside, those kids are never in trouble because they don't have any time to be. They go from school to this, to that, to this, to that, to this, to that. They never sit still. But the family is completely stressed economically and psychologically over this. And it makes no sense. And it's all about my brother-in-law's quest to build the ultimate college resume so his kids can go get in debt and get a job that doesn't pay what it's worth with a degree that's not worth what they paid for it. And it, 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 it's ludicrous. Okay, But if your kid really is good at soccer and likes to play soccer, then put them in a soccer league and let them play soccer in one league a year. And find other things to do. It's amazing how inexpensive a trip to the park is. How many museums are in your town or around your town? Most of those are free to low cost. You know, find things you can do beyond just band and tap and jazz. And I mean, it's just like some of these, these kids today are just so stacked with activities. It's just craziness. You know, and it's great that they develop all these things. But they can develop one or two this year and one or two next year. And in the end, they'll find what they really love, you know? In the case of my nephew, I mean, he likes baseball. For all the crap that he's in, what the kid really wants from when I talk to him is just to play baseball. Now that he's actually got some colleges looking at him as a long snapper, he's kind of liking football, and he's kind of seeing the wisdom of his dad kicking him in the ass and keeping him in football. But, I mean, this kid could have played baseball and football and nothing else and probably been completely happy instead of all this other stuff. So I think in general, whether you're in debt or not, This stuff where kids are in 10 different activities a year is a big part of families burning themselves out. And let me, again, always looking toward the future, explain something that's very important about doing this shit with your kids and how it can damage your marriage long term. Parents, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Dead or not, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Every day that your child is your child and becomes a day older, your responsibilities should go down just a little bit. And at some point, hopefully by about 18 years of age, you can step back and say, son, daughter, I am proud of you and what you have become. You are a young man and a young woman. And if you're going to live in my home still, that's acceptable and okay. And I have certain rules for the home. And, you know, if you're going to live at home, you're going to be home by a certain time. And if you're not going to be home, no. But, but basically, in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of your parents, you are now a young man or a young woman. You are an adult. And we don't control your life anymore. You do. We will always be here as mom and dad. We will always be here as advisors. But we are no longer here as supervisors. That's your job. Parents, stop not doing your job. That's the worst thing you can do is to hold on to those responsibilities and go, I don't understand why my 22-year-old son lives in my basement and plays video games all day long. Because you're still being a parent to a 12-year-old, so you're getting a 12-year-old. And you've parented your whole life like you have a 12-year-old, and you've created a 25-year-old, 12-year-old. Duh! So you have to be working towards that. Now, there's another part of this. Okay? In your home... If you have an intact family, and I think that's the best way to live if you can, no putting any single parent down, but if you can be together, it's easier and it works better. Across from you is your partner. 
Your children were given to you by the universe or God or spirit or however you see it or biological chance. They were given to you. Your your spouse you have chosen. Your children will grow up and go away. Even if they move down the street and you have family dinners twice a week, they're still going to go away. They have to, or they're not going to live a complete life. Four generations of a family crammed in a home, not a good idea. Children to develop into the adults so they can become must leave the nest. Doesn't mean they leave the family, but they leave the nest. They build their own nest, their own children. If you build your life based on 47 activities for every child, And constantly, all you're doing is going and, and, and being soccer mom and soccer dad and, and hockey mom and hockey dad, and that's all you're ever doing. As they leave and fly out of the nest and go to college or career, and the last one goes, and the house is quiet, you may have forgotten the most important relationship in your life for 18 to 20 years. Or more if you have four or five kids. Because the most important relationship in your life should be with your spouse. And people that live through their children often find that they don't even know their spouse at the end of the journey of raising their children. That's the person you've chosen to live your life with. Your children need to be engaged in things that make them independent And you need to always be for there, there for them, always love them, always spend time with them, always do things with them. But you need to be able to step back and look across at the person you've chosen to be with, not the person that was given to you, and make the most of that choice. And it's very difficult to do with debt, and it's very difficult to do if your life is based on your children. Your life should be based on your family. And the most important bond is with the person you've chosen to bond with. Because the child bond is going to be there. It doesn't require much work to love your child. At times, it requires work to love your spouse. Focus needs to be there so that the two of you can be parents together. Or else what you find yourself doing is with so much going on, you divide your, your, your responsibilities. You take Johnny to soccer, I'm going to take Susie to ballet... Maybe you and your spouse and Johnny and Susie should go to the park together or go to a museum and look at art together or sit at home together like bumps on a log once in a while and watch a movie together or take a walk in the backyard or plant a garden or a tree. All of those things cost very little money, but all of them are priceless. The debt has to go because the debt is a burden on your marriage and your family. You've incurred it. Your responsibility for paying it off is all you. There's no secret. There's no tip. There's no trick. There's a couple methods that I've given you. But in the end, focus on what matters and focus on the person you've chosen to live your life with because your children will always be your children as long as you're a good parent. But you can be a good spouse, but not be there for the other person. And that person may cease to be your spouse. And that's horrible when that happens to anybody. And it often happens due to stress of money and the parents living through their children instead of living for each other. 
little deeper than I thought I'd go with this one, but guys, you can read all the self-help books you want. You can listen to all the Dr. Phil bullshit you want. You can listen to all these talking heads on TV telling you how to build a solid family. I'm telling you what works. I'm telling you what has historically worked. And that is the roles of family members being clearly defined and them, and them living for each other, but developing their own independent lives and understanding the purpose of being a parent is not to raise children. It's to raise future parents. And you should begin seeing it that way when you're changing diapers. Let's go ahead and take one more and we'll wrap up for the day. What I want to finish up with is something I don't have a news story to cite, news story to cite for you, and I haven't been able to dig deep enough to find it, but I trust the source of the information. So this feedback is from a gentleman named Ed Wallace, who runs a show that he calls Wheels, and it is on AM radio in the Dallas-Fort Worth market, and I believe some other markets every Saturday. And Wheels is what it sounds like. It's an automotive show. It's about cars and trucks and making the best choice and how to take care of problems with your cars. And he's he's just a really solid guy. He's been around forever in this market. He's extremely trusted. And I would call him politically a centrist. Uh, you'll find him at times saying that what the Democrats are doing is good and sometimes saying what the Republicans are doing is good and often saying what they're all doing is bad. Uh, so maybe centrist isn't the word because that's actually a type of status. That's what type of status are you? Uh, centrist is, is kind of uh, somewhere between a, a full-on uh, communist and a full-on fascist in some ways. So independent is probably a better way to put that. So Wallace is definitely a political independent. At times I think he leans very libertarian, free market, and at times I think he leads pretty liberal progressive and at times I think he leads very free market typical Republican just to kind of define for you that don't know him what what he is as a source the information that I have from him though is largely anti-political it's really not about politics it's about facts and it's something to consider as you look at the future of our economy What I heard from him is in a speech recently done by the Federal Reserve head uh, for the St. Louis uh, branch of the Federal Reserve. I uh, had a chart that Ed said he had a hard time finding, and it was in this guy's presentation. It took him, he went, looked for it for like three hours because he was on to this himself. And, you know, there it showed up at this meeting, uh, the same meeting that he was at in, in St. Louis, I guess. Um, that showed what portion of the current gross domestic product can be attributed to oil and gas. And of that, how much is part of the shale boom? In other words, if we just took the oil and gas sector, as it is without the shale boom, versus what's been added to it with the shale boom, what does that look like and what does it mean for the overall GDP? Well, not only is the shale boom an incredible piece of the oil and gas sector, But what the, what the head of the St. Louis Fed said is if we took the shale boom out of the GDP, okay, if we removed it from the GDP and just put oil and gas back to where it was before the shale boom and left everything else as it was, officially the United States would still be in a recession because we would still be at no growth in GDP, meaning that the entire growth 
in the gross domestic product of the United States that is attributed us with us actually being out of the recession can be attributed 100% to nothing but the oil and gas boom. Now, let's rewind this and tell you how it's worse and talk about what a dumb redneck from Texas told you a long time ago. So let's start out with what makes this worse. Not only is that the case, but there's been real fudging, and really the other word that you use fudge as a replacement for would be more accurate, but I don't use that word on my show. But there's been real fudging around with the GDP statistic in the last year or two, including things like if a company decides this year that they'll be paying X in retirement benefits 20 years from now, today when that number gets entered, it goes to the GDP. So the promise to pay in the future goes on the GDP of today. That's massively artificially inflated the GDP. So even with the oil and gas boom, we're probably technically still in a recession if all of the fudging around like that were taken back out. And, you know, if I, if I wanted to, I could find you new stories on that in the past. But I've, I've presented them in the past. So just take me at my word, that's true. That things have been added to GDP that were never in the GDP before. And even with all that fudging around, it's taken the oil and gas boom to pull us out of a recession on a flat numbers measurement, which is how we judge if we're in a recession or not. It's not what's the unemployment rate. Is, is there economic growth of at least X? And if it's under that number or negative, then officially for a certain number of quarters, the United States is in a recession. That's how economists define the term recession. Negative growth or no growth in the GDP, which is all that we produce. Very, very simple way to determine whether we're in a recession or not. And then the markets are largely psychotic meaning that if you tell a market it's in a recession, it gets worse. And if you tell a market it's not in a recession, it gets better, even if it is or isn't, conversely, from what you've told it. In other words, you can tell everybody everything is great, you can fudge the numbers around, and actually the numbers say that things are not good, and the economy can get better just on the psychology of people believing things are good, so they spend money. And companies believe things are good, so they hire people, which employs more people, which means more people spend money. So you can actually make a market go up just with psychology. That's largely what the Fed has done with things like quantitative easing. They've eased enough to make the number look better, so the market says, oh, things are better, so the market responds positively. And you can get away with this for a while. But there's something going on here. Oil and gas boom has officially now extracted the United States from a numbers perspective from a recession, and the economy, though it's not going gangbusters, continues to improve, companies continue to hire, companies continue to expand, businesses continue to be created, and the long-awaited economic oblivion is stayed off for yet longer. Some redneck from Texas, son of a coal miner from Pennsylvania, told you a while ago, probably a year and a half, two years ago now, that the forecasted doom of the economy would be largely staved off for a time due to an oil and gas boom. Guess who that was? Yes, yours truly, yet again, I did tell you this. I, I, and those of you that have been listening long enough would be able to maybe even help. I, the thing is, I, I'd often like to, for new folks, just to earn your trust the way I've earned the trust of existing people. This is not an I told you so. This is... This is why you can trust my information. 
I don't remember what episodes that this was set in and the 1,400 episodes of today. It's hard for me to find this, but if any of you remember some of the times when this happens and can find a snippet, I'd love to play it for people just so you can see, like, this is just... And here's the thing. Well, how did you know that? Did you have some crystal ball or are you some market genius or something? No. When you look at the energy market and you look at the extraction rates going up, 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 and you realize that the United States is now in a position where we're becoming the leading producer in the world of oil and gas. I got more from Ed Walsh to tell you in just a second to reinforce that. That if you're producing energy in an energy economy, you're going to do okay. doesn't mean you'll do great, but you're going to do okay. And you're going to do better than expected. And when you're running a voodoo economy that's all about numbers, if you can generate enough numbers to tell the market things are okay, Even when things are a catastrophe underneath, the market will believe that it's okay and will continue to perform above expectations. Now, the, the key is when does the market lose confidence? We have some very dangerous things coming. We're going into a Christmas season. Before you know it, we'll be there. They already have the Christmas crap out in the stores, my wife tells me, which is inconceivable, but they do. She said Hobby Lobby is half Christmas already. I... Guys, there's freaking Halloween and Thanksgiving yet. Can we just go on it? But anyway, if the numbers are well off of consumer spending for Christmas, this really shakes confidence in the market. We have a midterm election coming. We have a border crisis that, make no mistake about it, your government created so it would have something to spread the dichotomy about. The Republicans have helped create this, and the Democrats damn sure have helped create this. Obama, with a stroke of a pen, drove this crisis that we're in now. There, there, there are billions and billions of dollars are being proposed as a solution to this thing, and we have a massive wave of young men coming to this country. They're not children. Not in the way they mean it when they tell you that. Please stop. Stop believing the TV. When they show you the little kid sucking his thumb in a blanket, and go, all these poor children, what are we going to do? 90% of these kids are mid to upper aged teenagers. That's how they manage to walk through the desert escorted by the freaking cartel and survive. When you see the little kid clinging to his mommy with his thumb in his mouth, right, and she's got a blanket around him and rocking him back and forth, that's not the kids that are the problem because they're not here on a company. There's his mom with him. Use your brains. That is a catastrophe economically for us. Because all of these people are going to go right on the government tent. Let me tell you right now another Jack Spiergel predi prediction. They will never, ever, ever, ever deport the bulk of these people. If the Republicans take over both the Senate and the House next time, and they probably won't, and take the presidency and had an 80% majority in the House and the Senate and the presidency, they will still never, ever, 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 ever send these kids home. The gang ranks will swell with them, specifically in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Southern California gangs. La Familia, etc., will swell with these young men. I believe many of them are coming with a debt to the cartels. The, the families sending these children do not have the freaking money to pay to send them here. This is a big economic unknown. So you've got an election year. You've got a cycle of consumer spending that will be analyzed. 
You've got unemployment numbers that continue to improve, but only because people cease to be part of them. In other words, you've been unemployed so long, you're no longer part of the unemployment rate. Or you've never had a job, and now that you're looking for a job, you're not part of the unemployment rate. This is the voodoo that's going on there. There's all these different things that can shake the confidence of the market. And that's what we're, that's what's separating this economy from a depression, not just a recession right now. Confidence. As long as the average idiot has confidence in the market and continues to behave that way, and there's reasonable employment of idiots, this market will hang on. And this oil and gas boom will hold us possibly for decades before the Day of Reckoning. Possibly for days before the Day of Reckoning. You just don't know. But let me tell you something else that happened recently, just last week, according to Ed Wallace. Again, I see as an ironclad source on fact. A ship left the United States of America bound for South Korea. Big deal. Uh, the cargo. Light, sweet, Texas crude oil. Went on a ship from the United States to South Korea. Now, what's so monumentous about that? It hasn't happened in decades. Since the 70s, there's been a ban on exporting U.S. oil. But there's new guidance on what that law means. There's not a new law. And it's basically, we can export refined oil. We don't export crude oil. But what does refined mean? Does it mean all the way to gasoline, or does it mean improved over when it came out of the ground? Well... They now have certain elements of the, like, call it pre-refinement in place in the oil fields. So the sweet crude, the high quality oil we're still getting out of Texas in huge amounts has already been somewhat refined. And the government, Department of Commerce, I believe, that oversees this, I don't remember exactly which department it was, basically gave the Obama administration a silent middle finger. They provided this guidance without asking the White House, and now there's not much the White House can do about it. And oil is being exported from the United States for the first time since the 1970s. Someone also told you that they were widening the Panama Canal specifically to ship natural gas from the United States to China, and that continues to go on. We're now developing exports of energy. Now, I want you to think about this. We're still going to have to import oil, large amounts of oil. Why would we export oil? If we still have to import oil, is it just stupidity or is there a reason? There's two reasons. One is about money, making lots of it. And two is about logistics and what's possible now. You see, because the, the, the quality of oil continued to go down and because there was a lack of confidence in being able to increase U.S. domestic oil production, specifically sweet, light, crude, all of the refinery improvements and refineries built recently, have all been built to deal with sour crude, shitty oil. So we have huge refining capacity of shitty oil, and we have less refining capacity for better oil. And yes, this does matter. You can't take light crude and put it through a refinement pr process designed for sour crude. So now we have a surplus of light, sweet crude, that countries like South Korea and many other nations would love to have. It's easier to refine. It tastes less work, and they have refinement facilities to refine it. They have greater refinement capacity than they have supply.
So they're willing to pay more for it because it costs them less to flip it into, into a usable product. As a Texas oil man producing light sweet crude, you might be five, six, seven dollars a barrel difference in selling your oil to South Korea versus having it pile up at a refinery that can't handle all of it here in the United States. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out if you're going to sell a million barrels and you're talking five to seven dollars a barrel difference, doesn't sound like a lot, but in the end it's five to seven million dollars. That pays a lot of pumping bills. So it would just make sense in a free market that you want to sell your oil to someone that would pay more for it, reduce the domestic supply to thereby push up the domestic supply. So here's what's happening. The United States is transforming into a major economy based on energy production, which is something we haven't been for a very long time. And I believe with some dips and some recessions, this is going to, this is going to stave off Major reckoning for quite a long time. I'd be surprised if it wasn't at least 10 years at this point. I know that seems counterintuitive. I know that a survival guy like me is supposed to say, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's coming. They're going to blow everything up. Buy gold and silver. But I have to tell you what I actually see and what the market's actually doing. And I think a lot of the doom and gloomers are going to be five years from now telling you the same story and just saying it's coming. And sooner or later they'll be right, but some of them may be geriatric by the time they're right. And as they sit in their depends, they'll probably still tell you, see, I told you. What I'm telling you is this. The economy is a living, breathing organism. And it's based as much on fact as it's based on psychology. And the psychology outlook going forward is extremely positive. And there's a lot of innovation coming to the market in technology in places like this. That doesn't mean everything's clear sailing. And I still think if you just put your money on autopilot in a stock market, you're going to get slaughtered in the next 10 to 20 years. But I think there's a lot of upside. And I think the day when the dollar dies and everything ends and, ah, is a long way off. And it's more likely that you'll see our currency go through another currency revaluation somewhere in the middle of all this. And if they can do it at a time when things look good and present it as a positive and the sheep never listen to anybody explaining why it's bad, that would be best for them. And that might be their new game now that they have this going on. Somewhere along the way, as we head toward $20 trillion in debt, it is imperative economically, that some sort of a reset button happens. But the when and the how and the what of it is hard to determine right now. But don't expect the end of the world as we know it in the next five years. Certainly don't plan for it. Plan for tumultuous times. Plan for ups and downs. Plans for bo plans, plan for booms and busts. Protect your hard-earned dollars. Protect your family. Protect your life. Protect your assets and cover your ass. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, and we 
Shut 